So good to be here each and every Sunday morning. I love coming together as God's people. It's a reminder weekly that we do believe that the gospel is true. We believe that Jesus really defeated death. We believe in the resurrection. And that's why we're gathered here today. These Sundays in the Lord's wisdom, he set up this day, this first day of the week for us to gather together and to remind each other of what we believe to be true, uh, to have spiritual things put back in front of us. As I often like to joke around with this term, you get jerked around by all kinds of things during the week, you get pulled by all kinds of different things, and you need a jerk towards spiritual things, and I get to be your jerk today. So, welcome. It is a joy for us to come and to be reminded of God's Word and what He's done. We're in the midst of a little mini-series here on worldview, and this is a little bit non-typical for us. We typically go through books of the Bible verse by verse, and sometimes even word by word, and we'll be rejoining that series very soon back in the Gospel of Luke. But we're taking just four weeks here, and I'm limiting myself to four weeks, although there's much more to be said on each one of these topics. We figured this was a good time with the beginning of school and just all that's going on in the world around us. It's just a good time maybe to stop and look at the big picture of what the Bible teaches and what it says. And so that's what we're in the middle of here today. You may have seen some of these videos going around with the Enchroma glasses. Have we heard of those? Uh, people who are colorblind, there's now a set of glasses that will allow people to see color for the first time, uh, maybe for the first time ever. Maybe some of you have colorblindness. I know a lot of people actually do, at least in some tones and uh, different hues of color. And it's pretty dramatic if you've ever seen one of these videos taking someone who's never seen color before and they put on this set of glasses and all of a sudden the world just pops. And just imagine, I, I can't hardly imagine that. I imagine it's difficult for you as well. And this always results, every one of these videos that I've seen, in people crying. The people that put on the glasses, the people that gave them the glasses, and the people watching the videos, and everybody's crying. I'm not crying, you're crying. We're just all crying. Because all of a sudden, the world just has this color, and all of a sudden, there's a texture to the world that you just never really knew was there. It's like watching on black and white TV. Back in, the, back in my day, I'm old enough to say that now, I remind my kids of that often. And the remote was my dad telling me to stand up and you know, go and change the dial on the TV. And, but to see a TV then, you could watch the ball game and you could generally make out what was going on. It was black and white and sometimes fuzzy and you had to move the rabbit ears and put some aluminum foil on the edges and you could get the, the, the picture. But now, with today, with 4K and UHD, and I don't know, are we at 5K now? I, I don't even know. I kind of lose track of what's going on. I, I kind of ask the question, like, how much do we really need to see? Like, it, it's, it's almost like being there. And it's just amazing, the color and, and, and the definition that we can see now. And I, I liken worldview study a little bit to that. It's a set of lenses that you put on, and then once you start seeing the world through a particular set of lenses, everything starts to sort into categories and starts to make a little bit more sense. And so that's what we're trying to look at and do. I think many times as Christians, we see what's happening maybe in the culture and some things that we would wring our hands about and things that distress us, maybe legislation or maybe behavior or maybe cultural trends, and we want to change those things. We want to see change affected out on the edges. But I think a lot of times we forget that you actually don't affect culture by trying to affect culture. You affect culture by changing the way that people think. All right? It's an inside-out approach. And here's what I mean. It works something like this. You have a worldview, 
And we're going to double click on that in just a moment and talk about what we mean by that. And what your view of the world, your value system, that will determine what you think is important. All right? And that's your values. You will act on your values. So whatever you deem to be important, significant, insignificant, that will determine your behavior. And then collectively, as we put us all together as people, that creates a culture in this more specific sense of the term. So I think that's the way it works. So as Christians, we're going to have an impact in the world even around us. I think the important thing is for us to dial into the heart, uh, to go straight to the top of this list. You could reverse it just as easily and it still works. We need to go to the worldview. What is inside of the way that people think that's driving what they value, which in turn affects their behavior? That is what we need to focus on, I believe. So what's in a worldview? We've looked at this and talked about the Bible as really set up in these bookends, and we'll look at this more specifically next week. But just go home. I would encourage you at some point this week, I'm going to give you an assignment. I'm going to give you four chapters of the Bible to read, and I want you to do it all in one sitting, okay? Can you guys do this? I don't think I, I don't usually give homework. So if you're visiting here with us today, you just happen to land on a homework day. I don't do this a lot. I want you to read Genesis 1 and 2, and then I want you to read Revelation 21 and 22. What you're going to find is that the story actually makes complete sense. You start with a garden, you end with a city. You have a tree, you have a tree, you have a river, you have a river, you have gold, you have gold city. It makes total sense. We'll, we'll tease that out next week, but I would encourage you to do that. So the Bible is set up in this way. The problem is, of course, this middle part. So here's what we're looking at. We've looked at the first two of these, creation and fall. Today we'll look at redemption and then next week, restoration. Answering four big worldview questions. And I believe these are the four questions that everybody is looking for an answer to. You can watch the news and you can think through these four questions, particularly the middle two, um, and maybe the third or the last one as well. But the middle two questions... Everybody's trying to answer these questions. So the question of origin, where did I come from? What's my backstory? Interesting to me how many major movie makers and the film industry, we're just in love with this backstory genre now. Have you noticed that? Where did I come from? What's my origin? Did I come from anything? What happens if you lose creation? I think you lose a lot. Are we just out there floating around? Should we just all sing dust in the wind and be done? Riders on the storm, it's nothing. Those were generational references. Some of you have no idea what that is talking about. It's songs that make it seem like there's no point to life, all right? There's contemporary versions as well. What about purpose? Where are we headed? You hear this phrase sometimes. Tell me if you've heard this one in the culture, maybe even said it. Everything happens for a reason. You heard that? Maybe from people that would say they don't believe anything about God. They don't believe there's a divine being. They don't believe anything. But then they'll say something like that. Everything happens for a reason. I'm like, huh, that's actually a really curious statement, isn't it? Everything happens for a reason. Well, it assumes that statement that there's some architect, there's some body, some thing at least, behind the created order, and there's something that's driving this reason to happen. And presumably, the reason is good. There's a good thing that's happened. 
And we believe that even in the midst of some kind of difficulty, that there's something happening that is gonna turn out good. What about human dignity? Why are humans valuable? Why are we more valuable than any other animal? We're just mammals, right? We just roam around the earth just like other critters do, right? We just have lar large four-chambered hearts and we happen to have a little bit more cognitive ability. Is that it? Is that all that makes us significant? Cognitive ability, creativity, self-consciousness, things like that. Is that all that makes us significant? I don't think so. And I think people know that. You may be familiar with the name Peter Singer. He's an ethicist at Princeton and a very interesting guy. I believe that he's actually worked out his worldview to, 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 to be consistent here. So the question that he's interacting with, I'm gonna show you a quote in just a moment here. The question that he's interacting with is how would you respond, it's a hypothetical situation, to a child, your child, that had Down syndrome, okay? So impaired cognitive ability. How would you respond to that? He goes back and forth on a couple of things and then he offers this quote, which is extremely telling. On what basis then could they hold that the life of a profoundly intellectually disabled human being with intellectual capacities inferior to those of a dog or a pig is of equal value to the life of a normal human being? Okay, so did you follow what he just said? In what way, what's your defense then of a human that has limited capacity versus a dog or a pig that has normal dog-pig capacity? Why would the human be more valuable? It sounds like speciesism to me. Add that one to your list, along with racism and chauvinism and the other isms. Sounds like speciesism to me. And as I said earlier, I've yet to see a plausible defense of speciesism. After looking more than 40 years, I doubt that there is one. Now, here's the thing. I think he's actually being perfectly consistent. That's the thing. That may sound jarring or shocking, but I think he's being perfectly consistent to his worldview. Remember, your worldview, questions of origin, where do we come from? It drives your values, which drives your behavior, which creates a culture. I think he's being perfectly consistent with what we see. And so when you lose creation, I think you have a hard time maintaining the dignity of humans. Even things like universal human rights we hear about today. What's your defense, though, of universal human rights? If there is no God, if there is no creator, if humans are just more critters on the earth taking up space and oxygen and resources, why are we significant? I think the Bible offers an answer to that question. Genesis 1, we're created in the image of God. We're created uniquely in the image of God. So creation, fall, and now we talked a little bit about the fall last week. Let's just review that. The fall is so significant. So in Genesis 1 and 2, you have the creation of the whole world. Humans in particular are emphasized. And then in Genesis 3, you have the temptation event, which we looked at last week. And we see that humans decided that they wanted to do the moral calculations on their own. They rebelled against God. They didn't accept what God said was good. They wanted to know good and evil on their own. And now they got it. <laughs> All right? In the psalm that Roy just read a few minutes ago in Psalm 81, it says that God gave them over. You, you wouldn't listen. So he gave them over to their devices. The serpent tempted Eve and said, God's holding out. He didn't want you to know about good and evil. He was actually right. 
but they push back against the Lord. Now you know good and evil. Now you have these moral categories. What if there were no such thing as the fall? How do you explain this? How do you explain what happened at the fall? If there's no such thing as the fall, then there really isn't a category of right and wrong. What's wrong with the world? Well, nothing really. We're just all fine. Have you ever met anybody, and just think about this, have you ever met anybody and had an honest conversation with somebody that would say, there's nothing wrong with the world, it's all as it should be? Has anybody ever had that conversation? I don't think I have. Um, Maybe some of you have. The fall helps explain what's wrong with the world. So right there, embedded in the curse, which we looked at last week, which is in Genesis 3, is a promise, though, and this brings us to talking about redemption here today. We left off with this promise here in Genesis 3.15. This is spoken to the serpent, or about the serpent in particular. I'll put enmity, strain, stress, conflict between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. So there's going to be an offspring that's going to come. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there's going to be a conflict that comes and eventually the woman's offspring is going to defeat the serpent's offspring. And we would say this happened ultimately at the cross. And so right here you get embedded this promise that God is going to send a deliverer. And so the rest of the Bible is built around this promise. God's going to send a deliverer. And so year after year, century after century, generation after generation, we have these long lists of names in the Old Testament. And many of you do the Bible in a year plan. And right around, usually, when is it? Late spring, early summer. That's when you're in the midst of like chronicles where the first nine chapters are all names. So back in the day, kids, we had these things called phone books. And in the phone book, it was, it was a big book, and it just, it's literally just a list of names and numbers. That's all it was. And so you feel like you kind of fell into a phone book that came to us from ancient Israel. It's just name after name after name after name. Why? It's important because we're tracing who's going to be the deliverer. This promise, of course, gets developed later through Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob and Moses eventually and David, uh, it gets developed down the line. But over and over again, we see this promise, long list of names. I'm gonna show you the worst slide that I've ever created, all right? This is the worst slide in human history, but hopefully it'll prove a point. This is how First Chronicles starts. And the, these are all the verses that I could put up there and make, well, it's still not readable, but here you are. All right, it's the worst slide in human history. I help students sometimes with their presentations and like how to put together things. I just wanna show you that one. That's the worst slide ever created. It's just names. It's just names. But here's what you could do. After each one of these, when you read it, add this little phrase. It'll spice it up just a little bit. Read that so-and-so begot so-and-so, so-and-so had so-and-so, and we're still waiting, all right? This is all designed to get us to the last and final genealogies, which brings us into Matthew and Luke. Give us the last genealogies. We don't have any more genealogies after that. Why? Because the serpent crushing one has come. The messianic king has come. We're there. And that brings us to talking about this topic of redemption today. 
All right, I'm gonna, I know you're enjoying that, um, but I'm gonna move off now. So what do we mean when we say redemption? What do we mean? This was helpful to me from Lig Duncan. He said this, redemption refers supremely to the work of Christ on our behalf, whereby he purchases us, he ransoms us at the price of his own life, securing our deliverance from the bondage and condemnation of sin. There's a lot going on in just a short little statement there. The work of Christ, it's a Christ-centered work. It's a purchase. There's an exchange taking place. We'll talk about that, which is what the term ransom refers to. We're familiar with that word. At the price of his own life, he, there was an exchange that took place, and he secures deliverance from bondage and condemnation of sin. Both of those things are significant. When we hear the term redemption, I think there are two ideas culturally that we think of when we think of redemption. Um, the first thing that I think of, I don't know if you think of this, but when I, when I hear the word redeem, I think a coupon, right? You redeem something. You walk into the store, you have your app, or you have the, the little, uh, you know, the nine-foot-long grocery store, you know, checkout thing with all the coupons on the back. Um, you, you redeem it. You cash it in, and you get something for it. You get a discount, you get a free thing, or whatever. So we, we use that, and that is helpful in the idea that it captures the idea of a transaction, okay? Um, but it's not the full story of biblical redemption. The other sense in which I hear the word, and this is probably more common, is the, the idea of a second chance. You redeemed yourself. Uh, you did something wrong, you messed up, but then you do something right and you redeem yourself. You, you did it right. You had a second chance. You'll hear it in sports sometimes. You know, the kicker misses the kick at the end of the game uh, that would have won the game. This is a little too close to home for a few of you out there uh, today, after yesterday. And maybe uh, the game goes to overtime and the kicker has a chance to redeem himself or maybe it doesn't work out that way for some, hypothetically, um, that missed a kick at the end of a game. So th- this happens. It's uh, the, the idea that I got a second chance and I got it right. There's a sense in which both these are, of course, true, but neither of these ideas really captures the full weight of what we're talking about with biblical idea of redemption. So what do we mean by redemption? We'll walk through this this morning and we will be a little bit, we'll move around a little bit through some different scriptures. And again, this is a pretty non-typical for us uh, to look at a number of different passages. We typically drill down on one uh, passage, but today we are looking at this idea of redemption and we're gonna do that by looking at a few different places, all right? So what is redemption? I've underlined both of these. I typically underline the point that we're on just to help us all keep track of what we're doing. I've broken these points out, but we're gonna talk about these sort of at the same time as we walk through this. So let's look at a few of these passages. I have most of these on the screen. Of course, you are welcome to look in your Bibles at these as well. Romans 3, 23 and 24. Now this is a verse that many of us grew up and memorized. Maybe if you had a wanna growing up or had some sort of a Bible memory program that you were a part of, you learn this one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's verse 23. But it doesn't stop there, and I think this is important. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. 
Christian redemption isn't just cleaning up your life, all right? Let's just, let's just try to be really clear on this. Redemption doesn't mean, it's not just a second chance. I blew my diet this week, and so I did Whole30, and now I've redeemed myself. That's not it. Or I forgot to read my Bible on Monday, so I read two chapters on Tuesday. I'm good now. That's not the biblical notion idea of Christian redemption. It's not what we mean. The problem's in verse 23. What's your problem? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I've quoted this before for you, but bears repeating again here. If sin is not the problem, then the cross is not the answer. All right? If you identify the problem is sin, then the answer then is the cross. I mentioned earlier that I don't think there's many people that would deny that they do wrong things occasionally or there's something wrong with the world. I don't think many people would deny that. They might not like the word sin, though. The word sin is just a little too churchy, right? People don't want to talk about themselves as sinners. You'll see this sometimes in like public apologies, corporate apologies. It'll say something very innocuous like this. Mistakes were made. It's like, well, by who? Like, who made what mistakes? And there's just sort of this bland, vanilla, passive yeah, something happened, but we're not, we're not taking true ownership of it. But we know there's something happened that wasn't quite right, but we don't really want to take ownership of that. I don't think there's many people that think they're absolutely perfect. I just don't think there's many people that think that. Charles Spurgeon, he, he was dealing with a different context and group. He was a preacher in England in the 1800s. And he was dealing with a group of people, some of them are still around today, who believed that you could reach a state as a Christian of sinless perfection, all right? So you could hit a state where you could, like, I'm in tune with the Spirit 24-7, I never sin. They said, what would, you do? what would you do if you met somebody that believed that? He said, stomp on their foot and see what they do. Like, depravity, it's, it's, the most, it's the most observable, sin is the most observable Christian doctrine, isn't it? We all know this. But what's the problem? Do we identify it actually as falling short of the glory of God? That's a way different thing than a corporate statement saying some mistakes were made, oops. This is saying I've offended a holy God and I have a problem now. I've fallen short. He knows you fall short and that's why he provided a solution for your falling short. But it's not in you. All right, it's just not in you. I think Many people today sort of have a Wizard of Oz-ish kind of gospel approach. Like, the answer's inside of me already. All I have to do is just find somebody that can kind of tease it out and draw it out, get the right program, the right plan. But it doesn't work. That's why I think so many people today are toiling silently and miserably trying to fix themselves. You know it. Deep inside, you know, I'm a mess, and I just got to fix myself. And people are miserable because they know this is true, that they fall short. But they stop short of the actual answer. What is the answer? Redemption in Christ. And are justified. Legal declaration, once for all. By his grace as a gift. <laughs> as a gift. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So it's this redemption. Remember, as we talked about this, it's this exchange that's taken place of Christ's righteousness for our sin. He redeems us. 
It's on the basis of Christ. It brings forgiveness. Next verse, or a couple of verses. Colossians 1, 13, 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have, our word again, redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So you see there's this close tying of redemption and forgiveness oftentimes tied together and also the word ransom gets used a lot in this context as well. This is dramatic language and I don't think most people wanna really recognize themselves as being a part of the kingdom of darkness the domain of darkness. I mean, that just sounds a little extreme, right? Like, well, I mean, I haven't done everything that I should have done. I haven't always been the nicest person, but domain of darkness, like for reals? Like that seems a little bit extreme, but that's the language. It's dramatic. You could rightly divide humanity into two groups. We like dividing people into groups, don't we? We do this all the time. Growing up in Alabama, this is what you do. This is, you're, you're an Alabama or you're an Auburn fan. There's two crayons in the box and you have to pick one by the time you're like 18 months. Um, and really, really, this choice is made for you based on your family. Um, if you wanna stay in your family, um, you, have to, you have to choose the right one. And so we, we like to categorize people. Well, the Bible does that too, but the categories are your in, other, in another place, Paul would say, you're in Adam or you're in Christ. Here, he would say, you're in the kingdom of darkness or you're in the kingdom of his son, one or the other. So humanity does divide into two categories. What's it based on? It's based on redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Those who are redeemed, this exchange, Christ's righteousness for our sin has taken place. Now you're on team kingdom of his beloved son, no longer in the domain of darkness. This is what is going on. So, much more we could say about that. Another one. I don't have this one on the screen for you, but I'll read it. Galatians three thirteen. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. This is rich with Old Testament imagery and language. Deuteronomy 27 through 30 talks about the blessings and the curses of the covenant. If Israel will obey the Lord, again, our psalm that we read this morning, if you'll just obey, you'll get the blessing. If you don't, you get the curses that are associated with breaking the law, with being covenant breakers. And Paul is saying, yes, you are a covenant breaker, all right? I tell people all the time, this doesn't start out as a comforting conversation. People will say, I just feel so guilty. I'll say, you know why? Because you are. You are. That's your problem. And the good news is you don't have to live in that, though. Christ forgives. But you've got to take ownership of that first. Christianity doesn't start out with this just it's not just unicorns and rainbows. It, it is dealing with the hard issues of life. Yeah, you're a sinner, and this is what you deserve, sinner. And that is what magnifies the grace of Christ, the forgiveness that we have. You gotta take ownership of that, though. Not downplay what we've done. We own it, and then we can enjoy the forgiveness that is provided for us in Christ. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us, for it is written, curses everyone who is hanged on a tree, this substitution idea. Jesus took your curse for you. So redemption, 
It's based on Christ and his work. It brings forgiveness for those to whom this exchange has taken place. Next, let's talk about the holiness that comes from this redemption that we enjoy. Titus chapter two, verse 14. It says, he who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, that's an interesting term, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. So this speaks to the ongoing, the initial effects of redemption, but also the ongoing effects of redemption. And as I talk through this, I just wanna be super clear what we're talking about. We are not saying that you obey the Lord and you walk in holiness in order to be saved. We are saying that the Lord has done something in your heart and life and that bears fruit, all right? Very important distinction. So imagine a tree and you have the root versus the fruit. We're saying if the fruit, or if the root is right underneath the soil, then the fruit will follow, uh, the fruit will come. Not the other way around. As Paul Tripp loves to tell the story, I've heard him use this numerous times. It's always so helpful, and I find it funny just the way he builds up the whole story. He says, imagine that you have an apple tree in your front yard, and it's not producing apples. You go to the store, you buy a bushel of apples and a roll of duct tape. You go back to the the tree, and you attach the fruit to the tree. Did you fix the tree? No, you didn't fix the tree. You just taped some fruit to it. And I think some Christians look and think, I just need some more fruit, And so they just try to attach fruit. That's not the fruit of the spirit. That's manufacturing fruit, not cultivating fruit. So what produces fruit? The redemption that is in Christ produces good fruit. He gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who were zealous for good works. So the fruit comes later. 1 Corinthians, as well, says something very similar. Says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you also have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now, this idea, this term, bought with a price, is actually translated in some other places and maybe in some other translations as the word redeemed. Now, there's a big context to this here in Corinth, So the question is, can someone, can you do whatever you want to do in your body if you are redeemed in Christ? And so these people had drawn a very, very sharp line between what is spiritual and what is physical uh, for us here, here. So on the left, the picture that you see up on the hill, this is standing in Corinth looking up the hill. Um, This is standing like in the Agora, the marketplace there at the bottom of Corinth. You look up up the hill and there's the temple of Aphrodite. Now, you may be a mythology person or not, but you might know enough to know that Aphrodite wasn't exactly known for her chaste and modest behavior, okay? So the temple of Aphrodite, there was nothing good happening up at the temple of Aphrodite. They think, back in the day, Corinth was a mega city. It was kind of the... New York of the day, if you will. Um, It was massive. They think, an ancient city, it could have had a population of somewhere around 800,000 people. Now, that's a lot of folks for a modern city, much less an ancient city. It was huge. They think they've only excavated about 5% of it. So there's just tons of it left to be dug up. 
Um, pretty amazing sight. And so you look up at the temple of Aphrodite, and they think, back in the day, in the first century, there could have been as many as a thousand cult prostitutes who were working up at the temple of Aphrodite. And so, back to Corinth, we have Paul, who's teaching and instructing, planting a church right there in the middle of Corinth, and he has people who are visiting the temple prostitutes. And they say, oh, it's no problem. See, we have this division. There's the inner person, and there's the outer person. What I do with my body doesn't actually matter. Why? Because Jesus redeems my soul. And so there's this clear division. Paul said, no, doesn't work that way. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, as I'm, I, I took that picture, I'm standing in front of the temple of Apollo, looking at the temple of Aphrodite. There's a ton of other temples around. They knew what temples were, all right? He says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Would you do that in the temple? That's the idea. Treat your body as if with the same holiness and re- respect and reverence that you would the temple. You're not your own. So glorify God in your body. It's amazing. So can't visit up there. That's not your place. Moving on, Hebrews 9. We're talking about the permanence now of the work of redemption. Hebrews 9 and verse 12. Our men are studying Hebrews on Wednesday mornings. One of these days we'll make it to chapter 9. I trust if the Lord tarries and doesn't return. Hebrews 9, verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and of calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This is a one-way street. You are redeemed. This redemption lasts. Now, there's a lot of Old Testament imagery here in Hebrews. This was the basic idea behind the temple. You had a courtyard, and you would come in, there's an altar for washing, uh, for sacrifice, and then a basin for washing, and then you had two divisions, the holy place and the most holy place. The most holy place on the far left could only be entered by one person one day out of the year, the high priest, Yom Kippur, day of atonement, and it was only by virtue of a sacrifice, multiple sacrifices actually for the priests and then also for the people. But Jesus enters the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. You see, the priest is the sacrifice, and he brings the best, the absolute best. In the Old Testament, when you brought a sacrifice, you couldn't bring the old sickly, uh, the, the, uh, the messed up sheep or the goats. Um, like, hey, God, you can, uh, you can have this one. Looks like it's on its last leg anyways. It didn't work that way. You were supposed to bring one of the prized ones, one of the most important to you. It was a sacrifice that you were to bring. Jesus becomes the ultimate human, the perfect human that gave his own life. And there's all kinds of imagery that becomes combined here. He is the temple, the place where God meets with humans. He is the priest and he is the sacrifice. I know that's hard for us to put our minds around completely. But he's all of those. All of these lines of the Old Testament come together in Jesus. And thus, it's a much better redemption than this temporary redemption that the bulls and the goats brought. It's the ultimate one. 
what he's done. It can't be repeated. There's nothing else to be done. I joke with us sometimes when we do communion. Thank you for not bringing your bulls and your goats today. As, I, as you come in the parking lot, I didn't see anybody bringing a sheep today. Um, you're, thank you. We, we don't need those here. Uh, there's no turtle doves that I'm aware of, at least here with us this morning. Why do we not do those things? I mean, the Old Testament is full of commands to make sacrifices. Why, why didn't you bring anything today? Your answer is this. There's eternal redemption secured in Christ, so we no longer have to do those things. And it's by grace alone. Let me ask you a question, and I want you to think through this because this will hit home with some of you. Maybe some of you don't struggle with this. Do you have trouble believing God forgives you by grace alone? Do you ever have trouble believing that and thinking, I just need to contribute a little something? It's hard to receive gifts, isn't it? Um, Some of the most generous people I know probably have the most trouble receiving gifts. You ever notice that? Um, I think many of us would rather be on the giving side of things. It's hard to receive gifts. Nothing else works like this in life, does it? Nothing else works like the gospel. Nothing else. Um, How do you get raises at work? You you sell stuff and you produce things and you have good performance reviews and you're reliable. You don't cause problems. That's how you get places at work. We live in large part in a meritocracy. You get what you earn. You deserve it in some sense. But then we come to the gospel. We come to the gospel. How do we reconcile that? Here's what tends to happen over time too. I read this little booklet years ago and I think about this very often. I've shared it before. Here's what happens. This is from World Harvest Mission, a little booklet. And they, they say you're living your life and you have a moment of salvation. That's when this redemption Justification happens. You are saved now. And if you track the top line, you're growing. You understand something about your condition. That God is holy, and then you understand something about your, you understand something about God and something about yourself. God's holy and I'm not. I need something to bridge the gap. What's going to bridge the gap? The cross bridges the gap. You live a little while longer. You're like, you know, God's a little more holy than I gave him credit for initially. And I'm a little worse than I thought I was initially. And then it continues to grow. And maybe you start to look at your own heart and think, I think I'm sweeping a dirt floor. There's just, it's just like endless layers of selfishness and the, the things I keep finding inside of me. The first thing I learned when I got married is how selfish I was. First thing I learned when I had kids was how selfish I was. First thing I learned when I had a second kid was how selfish I was. It just keeps going, doesn't it? And so you can, you can be left with this sense of, oh, I got a problem. How do you, what do you do? Well, you can try to perform and you can just, you know, stir up your good works a little better or you can just pretend like the gap doesn't exist. I would argue neither one of those is the right answer. The right answer is to eliminate performing, eliminate pretending, and the cross gets bigger, <laughs> Jesus' sacrifice is just that much better than I thought it was. He's that much greater than I thought it was. This is the redemption, eternal redemption by grace alone in Christ. So what if there's no redemption? We've been asking the question along the way. What if there's no creator? We've talked about that. What if there's no such thing as the fall? We've talked about that. What if there's no such thing as redemption? I think we're actually seeing this play out right now. Um, In our world and in our culture, 
We have certain things our culture loves giving second chances on, and then we have certain unpardonable sins culturally. Have you noticed that? And we cancel people, new term we use now, not that new anymore, but we cancel people. You no longer have a standing, you no longer have a say. You can't speak to issues anymore because you've committed this unpardonable sin. And there's a whole list of these that we could go through. Teens are very aware of this today, of the things that they say, the things that get captured, things that get posted online all the time. I think it's eating us alive as a culture. Ariana Huffington, not writing from a Christian perspective at all, writes about this though. She says, we've reached a dangerous moment in our culture where we assume a frozen ideal, a state of arrested development from which no growth or improvement are assumed possible because growth cannot happen without the necessary ingredients of redemption, forgiveness, and self-forgiveness. Isn't that interesting? Borrowing terms that we like, redemption, forgiveness. These are terms that we're, we're, she's like the currency of Christianity. She's using those terms, um, borrowing really from terms that we love and use. I think we're seeing this play out if there's no redemption. There's no second chances. And I think that's why we see anxiety rates through the roof with so many people right now um, because they feel like they can't ever redeem themselves. And that's where I think Christians, we actually have an answer to this. And that's redemption in Christ that we've been talking about. Next week will be a fun week for us as we wrap up this study looking at this idea of restoration. There's more to redemption that's still yet to come in the future. We'll talk about that next week. We'll look at this idea of the new heavens, uh, the new earth. We'll look at this idea that the curse is reversed now in Revelation, the curse of Genesis. And I can't wait to get into that with you and look at what the Lord has in store for us. So I hope that you'll make plans. Be back with us and pray for us. Father, thank you so much for an opportunity today to be together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the redemption that we get to enjoy and have in Christ. Uh, Lord, it's not something we have done, uh, but in your kindness and goodness, you have made a way for us. Lord, maybe there's some in here who are hearing this, and maybe some of these thoughts are new. Uh, For the first time, they've come to realize that they are working, trying to make themselves better on some sort of self-improvement path of redemption, and they're just falling short over and over and over again. Uh, Show them that Christ has completed this work and that redemption is available in him. Lord, the final work will be done in the end, as we'll see more next week, but Lord, we praise you that we can be redeemed, even now. And it's an eternal redemption. You won't go back on this redemption that we enjoy. So Lord, we thank you for that. Use your word, we pray. Make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. We pray in Christ's name, amen.